Hi, I'm Dr. Michelle Woolhouse. Join me in Auckland on the 18th and 19th of November for the AIMA 2022 conference. The theme for this year is optimising 21st century healthcare for the mind, body and spirit. I'll be giving a presentation discussing the drivers of stress, anxiety and burnout and how to support patients with these symptoms. Visit aima.net.au for more information and to register. FX Medicine acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia, where we live and work, and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders, past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Hi, and welcome to FX Medicine, where we bring you the latest in evidence-based integrative, functional and complementary medicine. I'm Dr. Michelle Woolhouse, and joining us today on the show is psychologist, mindfulness meditation teacher and wellness coach for doctors, Cherie Johnson. Welcome to FX Medicine, Cherie. Thanks so much, Michelle. It's terrific to be here. Today, we're going to discuss caring for those who care. Caring for the healthcare provider, the practitioners, the doctors, the allied health staff, and even the patients who might be caring for a family member who's sick. So often medicine's prevailing culture, or even the whole of healthcare, is that of competition, stoicism, showing no weakness, never asking for help, putting patients first, irrespective of what's happening for you or in you, and ignoring everything internally. Sounds like a recipe for burnout. So what is burnout, Cherie, and how does it differ from anxiety? Well, really good question to start with, Michelle. So um, <laughs> we, we mostly use Christina Maslach's definition of burnout. So we're still using that framework of uh, extreme exhaustion, the kind of exhaustion that having a couple of days off doesn't seem to really ameliorate. Depersonalisation, where we're really becoming quite removed and hostile and cynical about the work or the purpose of the work or our mission. And Christina Maslach's more recent research is really pointing to this attitude of cynicism that's, that beca- mm. is a problem in burnout. And that third part of, of that loss of self-efficacy where we really feel like, what's the point? Nothing I can do makes much of a difference anyway. Really losing our sense of agency and, and feeling empowered that we can contribute or support uh, the people mm. we're trying to help. So those three things together, a lot of the research around burnout says in relation, most of it is in doctors, there's some research for nurses, it's really about how, it's quite hard to measure these things in real time and when people do measure it in their organisations, they're hesitant or even reluctant to share the data, so it's quite hard to get hold of, but most of the research says about 50% of people will have a burnout experience in a 12-month period in healthcare. What that really means is one of those symptoms. So I think we need to get a little bit more nuanced in our understanding of the research that we're not really saying that people are having all three of those things and they're actually burnt out and left work. We're really saying when people self-report, saying they've had at least one of those symptoms in the last 12 months. So mm-hmm. when we try and distinguish it from anxiety, anxiety is, well, of course, we can have specific phobias and so on, but often anxiety is a generalised experience. Uh, when we're talking about burnout, we're still very much talking about work. 
So the landscape is changing all of the time and there is research and a lot of, you know, leadership literature and so on now that's talking about burnout in relation to parenting or caregiving or other kinds of burnout. Mm. But the burnout that I'm interested in and that I'm talking about and that the research is still mostly grounded in is in relation to the helping professions, so work. And it's very specific to that. In the pandemic, of course, we've had lots of experiences of anxiety that's much more generalised across whole workforces. You know, this experience Mm. last year of bringing the pandemic home to our families because we were doing work where we might be exposed to COVID-19, that anxiety is really, um, I want to say new, it's not really new, it's really amplified in in the context of COVID. So I think we're still really learning a lot about that. Mm. Absolutely. It's such a new experience, wasn't it? So you mentioned in your book, and, you know, I I love this statement as well, by the World Health Organization, who define health as more than the absence of disease and that it is a state of physical, mental and social well-being. You know, a definition that I think really underpins the whole of the naturopathic world's principles, but not so much do we see that in kind of the mainstream But if we dive a little bit deeper, the word well-being has been bandied around so much over the last decade. You know, we've got a whole wellness industry now that we never had, you know, 10, 20 years ago. You write about a thing called the wellness continuum, which I thought was great, you know, to further break down all those varied aspects of our well-being. Tell us about the well-being continuum and how we can assess this in ourselves, perhaps, as practitioners, but also in those that we support. Mm. It's interesting how, you, you know, our thinking keeps developing, doesn't it? And I probably am starting to think of it as a well-being spectrum more than anything now. <laughs> but but um, certainly the, we are all on a continuum all of the time in the sense that mm. our well-being and our wellness is very highly dynamic. So, you know, we don't know what will happen in the next moment, in the next hour, in the next day. Mm. And, and all of those contextual possibilities can change our experience of well-being or wellness and, you know, the classic example is going to the doctor to receive results and being on that anxious edge of what the results will tell us about our health. So, mm. you know, that can change in any moment. But the wellbeing continuum really is us moving up and down between surviving, coping, really flourishing and thriving, back up the other end of languishing. Languishing is not depression, but it's that very flat affect where we don't feel like we've got much energy and we can't really be bothered and we really have to work a bit harder to rally ourselves to do our usual things mm. um, and then through and then through to burnout and you might extend it further along to be you know chronic depression or something like the well-being continuum in in the thriving doctor in the book is a double-headed arrow because you know, to give that feeling of movement and to say, well, I don't really know where the end result is. The end is is when we're dead. I don't know. <laughs> um, well, yeah, it's such a dynamic state, isn't it? And we and we mm. rely upon our coping strategies or and some of them are fantastic and helpful and some of our coping strategies are not so good really, aren't absolutely. they? And yeah, so, absolutely. Um, so we can kind of be coping but we're actually using an unhealthy coping strategy which will then end up taking us backwards on the wellness continuum. Mm. Totally. Yeah. And, you know, we often, I think in health, we often talk about, you know, surviving. People say, how are you going? We'll say to our colleagues, oh, surviving, as if, um, you know, that's <laughs> okay and that's enough. And, mm. you know, that's that's really not enough on a day-to-day, week-to-week, year-to-year basis. You know, it's it's good to be surviving. We want to be 
uh, certainly, you know, managing and surviving our whole homeostasis, our whole body is set up to help us survive. Yeah. So certainly that's that's good and that's an achievement in in a context where we're, we're working under a lot of pressure in, in the pandemic and so on. Surviving in itself is something to be celebrated. But it's yeah. really not thriving or flourishing. It's really the classic, you know, I'm just keeping my head above water sort of scenario. Mm. And I think we can do much better than that in health. Yeah, I think, I think you know, so too. We, we need to be walking the talk. I know for me, if I go and see a health professional who appears to be well and healthy and resourced and um, able to be present and listening to me and, and truly kind of in the room, uh, that's a much more positive, encouraging experience. I'm more willing to trust their um, that's what right. they might yeah. be sharing than somebody who looks like they're hanging on by their fingernails. That's right. I know. And we all like to, like flourishing is almost like an addictive experience. Like when we're around people that are flourishing, it kind of helps lift us. You know, we get lifted to sort of that higher energetic point really. And mm. when we're, we're with people that are languishing, I love that word languishing, I think we need to spread that around a bit more, languishing and burnt out. Like we can feel it, like we're energetic beings that we share each other's energies and so when you are sitting with a healthcare practitioner that might be languishing or burnt out I think the patient can feel that and then that would you know equate to um, I guess less confidence and then that's not that's a negative experience really for the patients who are looking for support themselves. Yes it is and you're really um, pointing I think to you know I've, my, one of my current little um, you know things that I'm working on is this idea of clinical skills I think you know a lot of Perhaps it's more in the in the traditional uh, in medicine, perhaps more than in some of the other integrated and allied health professions. But this idea that really attending to a person, being present, sharing positive energy, which we know is contagious, as you're pointing to, mm. um, is a clinical skill. In fact, you know, listening and and being present is a therapeutic treatment in and of itself. And so this idea that we would call that a non-clinical skill seems to be wrong to me. I think that you know, it's a yes. primary. It's a primary clinical point. skill to be able to meet and connect uh, with another person. And if you're with a patient or a client who is vulnerable or scared or just sick, uh, then being able to be fully present with them and to hold an energetic space that's warm and trusting and encouraging is a therapy. And so I think mm. we really need to start reviewing some of our language. I think the clinical skill is really referring to our technical skill or um, I was chewing around that that might be oh, our kind science of our knowledge skills. base, yeah, or our knowledge base, not, you know. Yeah, but mm. there's a lot of science behind compassion and empathy, and and a lot of the psychology that I'm working with, and there's a lot of um, empirical evidence-based science there. So it's not really even the science and the non-science, yeah, right. or the science and the art. So language can be a bit tricky sometimes, but I think that we want to revisit the idea that what we might traditionally think of as soft skills or people skills. Yes. Uh, as non as non clinical skills, I think that's uh, that's a bit of a trap that we might have walked into that we should yeah, revisit. Yeah, I think you're right. In your book, The Thriving Doctor, which is a great read, by the way, you talk Thank about you. the father of positive psychology, Martin Seligman. So Martin was one of the first psychologists, or one of the first known psychologists, to shift the research frame of psychology from looking at what goes wrong in human mental health and behaviour, and then going on to ask questions about what goes well. So he yeah. wanted to know what people with no pathology did that was keeping them well, and he came up with that framework to discuss this, which was the PERMA model. Tell us about the PERMA model because I think actually if we can really understand this, we can use this as practitioners 
not just for ourselves but for our patients as well. So tell us about the PERMA model. How does that work? Mm. Uh, so I think when Martin Seligman started asking that, that question exactly as you describe, instead of saying why he, why isn't anybody saying well what are the well people doing? Mm. Um, so when he started asking that question, he really concluded that there wasn't a recipe, there wasn't one prescription that we could give people. And so what he concluded was that actually the people who are doing really well, who are flourishing, and really thriving have these ingredients, but they have them in varying amounts and they have them in this very dynamic kind of process. So that those five ingredients, more positive emotions. So they feel pleasure and happiness and they know how to savour it and build it and grow it to have more positive emotion mm. in their lives. That they're really engaged in the things that they do in their life, that they, if they notice, if they love riding their bike, that they do more of that, that if there's somebody who they feel happy when they meet, they make sure they meet that person more often. So they mm. look for the things that they feel really naturally that they're drawn to, that they're engaged in, and, and you know, they become skilled in those areas. So they really have those experiences of flow where they're totally immersed in something and enjoying it and it's giving them energy instead of just drawing energy from yeah. them. Really positive relationships, and that might be with pets and animals as well as people, but they are invested in relationships. They don't see that as a sort of nice byproduct. They're actively engaged and involved in building and valuing those relationships. Lots of meaning, so the work around understanding the purpose, why they're doing a thing, which I think we lose in health often. We have very clear meaning and intention and purpose at the beginning, but we get so immersed in the bureaucracy and the systems and the pressure that we sometimes forget what we're doing there in the first place. Mm. So really tuning into, you know, this sense of belonging and connection and service, what's the purpose of me being here, and then um, accomplishment. And we sometimes call this um, autonomy or achievement when we talk about self-determination theory. So this idea that as a self-propelled adult particularly, and we see this also in our teens, of course, and, and even with small children but just not consistently, <laughs> that we, we, we want to have a sense of being able to, set our mind to doing a thing and achieving that, to being able to mm. look back. And we know, you know, I mowed the grass on the weekend. It's a great sense to look around and go, oh, doesn't that look neat and tidy? That feeling yeah. of being able to decide to do a thing and then be able to deliver that thing, which, again, I think is um, challenged for many of us in health, you know, inside these big complex systems. We forget that there are many things that actually we did achieve in the day. Uh, and mm. so coming back to noticing, and so a lot of the practices some of the other people uh, in wellbeing talk about are savouring and appreciation and gratitude. And you can see mm. those tools all through the PERMA model. We're really, um, we're not letting the positive aspects of our life just slide off like Teflon. We're really noticing them and, and locking them into our memory and appreciating them in very active ways. Yeah, and, and even just managing our goals, like not setting our goals too high that's unachievable. So setting really achievable goals can be mm. make a big difference to, to how we experience accomplishment because if we mm. set our goals way into the future, then yeah, it's a long, yeah. long time in between accomplishment. So, yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful way to kind of reframe, I think, what thriving is because really, you know, if we're languishing or we're burnt out, then we want to go beyond surviving into that flourishing mode. And yeah. I want to read this definition you have in your book because it's really it's really great. And I think, you know, as people listening to it, it's like we need to ask ourselves, is this, does this sound like me? So mm-hmm. you write, a flourishing practitioner is upbeat, enjoys their work, feels like they've got the work-life balance sorted most of the time, is committed to partnering and collaborating with others, values their relationships 
is emotionally in tune and has a can-do mindset most of the time. They're able to manage their own internal responses to their work as well as the external environment, including the complexities of healthcare electively. These practitioners are empowered and fulfilled and they can feel their own agency in their life. Wow. (laughs) And I particularly love the last line of this, feel their own agency. And you go on and talk about this professor of organisational behaviour, Jeffrey Pfeffer, and, and, you, and you quote him and you say power is one of the most important things that we need to build in ourselves. And he says, you know, we have to basically seek our own personal power like our life depends on it. Tell us about agency. Like how do we get more agency? What do we mean by agency? Because I often think that sometimes the word power feels too strong for some people and they kind of avoid it and see it as a negative. But, you know, you write about how important it is, you know, in terms of preventing burnout and, and working towards a more flourishing mindset. Yeah, they're big concepts and our language isn't helpful always. I agree with that. And we, we did actually, I toyed with the calling the book Agent of Change in Healthcare or something like that. And I had some feedback that it sounded like a, um, you know, a police, something to do with the police. So, <laughs> so we true, changed that. It? But, you know, I think agency is just so powerful. I mean, I had a counselling practice for many years. I was coaching people in corporate spaces. A lot of the meditation work I do is about people tapping back into their own source and their own energy. Mm. Uh, so I think agency is just a, alive in all of the work I do, whichever hat I'm wearing. It's really about helping people find that their own personal power. I, if, if we can't lead ourselves really effectively and ask ourselves, what do I need? What help do I need so that I can be true to my own desires or my own values or help myself uh, find more wellness? then really I think it's it's almost disrespectful to think that I can help somebody else if I can't Mm. even help myself. And so take this very personally. People constantly tell me it's the system and I know the health system is incredibly difficult. There are many things that we need to change and very often one single individual can't make those changes. But each individual that is empowered is better at finding the other people who can help them and better at harnessing the energy for change. And so I really just believe wholeheartedly that if we can't harness our own energy and find our own capacity and our own belief to, you know, to make change, even in our own small daily habits, then how do we think we're ever going to change any big system or even a small system? So Mm. um, systems are built by people, they're enabled by people, they're delivered by people it's only people who can change them. So people who are clear about their own capacity or at least their capacity in connection with other people, those are the people who are going to create better systems for us all. And and every single person has the capacity for personal agency, but we sometimes can't find that by ourselves. We need, you know, we need supporters and encouragers and and people who are like-minded in terms of what we're trying to achieve. And we mm. need to say our, our things out loud if we're going to find those people. So it's that combination of language where you're talking about semantics of like, mm. you know, as doctors, we often tend, or, or as all health practitioners, we tend to be self serving, serving others ahead of ourselves. And so when we talk about agency or even self care, self compassion, it's almost feels oxymoronic in a, in a system that is driven by striving and hard work and mm. self sacrifice, et cetera. So I think. You know, from my perspective as well, like finding your own agency 
for your own personal change makes the biggest difference to your ability to, I guess, to be humble as a healthcare practitioner as well as Mm. working towards manifesting health in yourself, which then has just this kind of flow-on effect, which we referred to before. Hmm. Yeah, and I think if you feel if you feel that in yourself, you know, you genuinely believe that other people can feel it. If you don't believe you've got any agency yourself, it's really hard to convince somebody else. It's kind of a hollow promise. And anybody mm. who has done a degree in health has agency, right? We have to have some agency to get ourselves through school, to get ourselves into university, to um, you know, sit exams and write assessments and do research and find new friends when we're in foreign environments. We all have that kind of agency. Uh, it's just that how and where we apply it. And of course, if we're burnt out or highly anxious or unsupported, then you know it's very hard to remain self-driven. And I think it's one thing that health professionals really need to build their skill in is asking for help and partnership and collaboration. Mm -hmm. It's in partnership and collaboration that we generate new things, that we give each other energy to push through when things are very difficult, when we don't feel like we've got the support of the administration or the funds or whatever we need. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's in collaboration when we can look across the room and see somebody else who believes in whatever the project is too and, yeah. you know, the, that ebb and flow of our energy, we pick each other up. We were talking about uplift before, you know, we you know, we help each other see yeah. and vision something better. And I think also, you know, it, it is hard when you are burnt out to see the fog beneath the trees kind of thing. Like we can't mm. see ourselves out of the mud. And, mm. you know, whether it's someone listening to this podcast that kind of is saying, well, maybe I am burnt out or even languishing, you know, or some of the patients that they're supporting, because there's such an element of fatigue and despondency and despair in that burnout phase. There was some research done by Richard Davidson, the US-based neuropsychiatrist, and he did a lot of research on Buddhist monks and how they actively pursue more positive states of thinking to counteract negative states that increase their suffering in many ways. And you write in your book the four aspects that we can work on or that we can support a patient to work on that actually develop our neurobiology to help us prevent burnout or, or go from burnout into more positive states of being, like coping or, or flourishing. Take us through them. Mm. So uh, Richie Davidson's research is really, or his team, is, is really interesting because they've been doing it for a long time. As you said, they've studied monks who have meditated for you know 40 and 50 years But they've also studied studied a lot of novice meditators and the machinery now to look at what's happening uh, with our neurons and our neuronal pathways is so advanced from what it used to be. So we can Mm. see a lot of things we couldn't see before. And certainly they're saying that they can measure resilience, outlook, which is really around positive or negative frames about what's going to happen in the world, our attention, our ability to focus and our capacity to be generous and altruistic in our behaviours, that they can map these these neurological pathways that relate to these behaviours over time when a person is having practice at uh, compassion or uh, mindful meditation or loving-kindness meditations, which are really about building um, compassion and connection. Uh, And in these practices, doing generous acts for people, 
they can map and watch people's brains change. Literally, it's it's pretty amazing stuff. Yeah, yes. One of the challenging things is to see resilience change neurologically requires really thousands of hours of meditation. And when I first was reading and listening to Richie's research, I was feeling quite despondent and discouraged that, you know, <laughs> all this effort to meditate, how could I possibly ever meditate enough hours, you know, without yeah. becoming a monk? Um, but, cer- <laughs> but certainly um, over time they are starting to show that a small amount of meditation or contemplation practice. Richie Davidson says that mindfulness has kind of hijacked the conversation a bit, that we shouldn't just be talking about mindfulness meditation. We should be talking about contemplation practices more broadly, Mm. um, which I think is really interesting and shows the kind of level of nuance that his research is getting to now. And certainly what they're saying is small amounts often is going to be the key for our neurological change. And, And if you think about, for instance, learning tennis, you know, you can go and hit a tennis ball against the wall or with your coach for an hour once a week and you'll probably improve. But if you play and if you hit against a wall in between, and even if it's only for five or ten minutes a day, you'll probably improve more rapidly because Mm. you're inviting those neurons to talk to each other more often. And so you're just really strengthening their connections because of the regularity of the talk, the electrical chemical talk that they're doing together. So... Mm. That consistency is so important, yeah. Yeah, so we really want to be looking at small amounts often. Yeah, I was just thinking about, you know, back to when I was watching my kids, you know, learn to talk or learn to walk, Mm. you know, they never had a day off. Once they started babbling, they were off learning, you know, language day after day after day, you know, so going back to that kind of how you build your neurons, sometimes looking at children can be such great inspiration. I love that analogy of they never had a day off. It's great. (laughs) (laughs) I think what I loved, which is a new term for me, which was psychological safety and psychological safety being a a state where we feel safe, we feel trustworthy, and we can have that not only just inside ourselves, but within our teams and within our relationships and within, I guess, our systems. And one of the things that strikes me in, in uh, I think we're talking about the hospital systems, is that they can tend to have an element of, of mistrust, you know, as from an individual. But you talk about developing psychological safety. Tell us a little bit about what you mean and how we can go about improving that. So Amy uh, Edmondson written a terrific book called uh, The Fearless Organisation and that's about or more about organisations and teams. I really recommend that to anybody who wants to look at her work. But essentially psychological safety is this ability to be safe enough at work to question something, to call something out, to say out loud I made a mistake. And really we won't do that if there's any concern about being safe. And so teams that foster that, really allow people to develop and learn and grow because that's how we develop and grow, right? We make a mistake and we say, Mm. oh, I really didn't expect that to happen. Has anyone else had this happen before? What should we do next time? It's in those conversations that we develop and grow. And because we've shared it together, we build a bit of trust with each other and they're very, these teams are really high in respect. So um, Google did some big research called the Aristotle Project in I think 2016 around this space too and they found for all their hundreds of teams inside Google, the distinguishing factor that made a team effective was their level of psychological safety, nothing to do with diversity or gender equity or age mm. or experience, but how safe did people feel in their team at work? And certainly in uh, health, 
if we have a medical error and a person doesn't speak up because they're ashamed or they're too scared, mm. which we know happens often, medical error is the third cause of death in America compared to, uh, after heart disease and cancer. So, you know, medical error comes about because of secrecy and shame because people mm. are in in these deep hierarchies and don't feel like they can say something, you know, to the people up from them uh, when they think a decision is wrong or something's been missed because they are very aware of their position in the hierarchy. So psychological safety is where teams are going to intentional conscious lengths to make it okay to be able to say, I got this wrong or I don't think we're making the right decision, can we revisit this, can we pause, without any ramification, without any, yeah. you know, career detriment happening as a result. Mm, that's right. I mean, it's such an important thing. We're talking in medical practice or, you know, in, in all practice to kind of encourage to ask our patients you know, whether they feel safe, you know, in their job or in their life or at home. But also it's really important to ask ourselves, do we feel safe? Like do we mm. actually feel safe within the conditions of work that we, we work in? And and yep. if we don't or if there's an inkling that we don't feel safe, like how do we go about really ameliorating that? Because it's such a powerful aspect, I think, of that holds you back from thriving and, and mm. flourishing. Yeah, I think there are some there are some systems things happening. And just to give you one example, the 2020 medical training survey last year had 57% response rate of doctors in training, which the year before was 27%. So I think that's a fantastic inquiry from the Australian Medical Board to find mm. out what's happening for training doctors. They, they've obviously put in some pretty good systemic um, intentional work to raise the respondents from 27% to 57% in one year. Yeah. So that's a terrific example of systemic inquiry. Um, in terms of uh, how do we actually build those skills, we really need to do a lot of work over a long period of time with the leadership. Uh, we know the junior doctors are bringing a, a case to court because of the numbers of hours they work. That's a, a systemic problem that no one doctor can respond to and mm. leadership endorsement can help, you know, the leaders who say, yes, yes, speak, take take yes. that issue, <laughs> I'll, I'll support you. It's like, um, you know, in the gender issues, women need men to support them in their claims. Um, you yeah. know, black people need white people to support them in their claims. So I think we mm. definitely need leadership very actively engaged in some of these things. Yeah, and bravery really and mm. as well. So I wanted to, to move now to the particular issue of re-entry anxiety. So for some of us in Australia, we experienced a really long lockdown. You and I were, were mm -hmm. one of them. And and yes. obviously, you know, we're out of lockdown now in Victoria and New South Wales. and But all over the world, we've seen people experience lockdowns of various lengths and times. And, and for some, COVID-19 and the ability to work from home and, you know, to come away from sort of that team environment has actually been really positive. But now we're finding kind of more anxiety or even fear of burnout on the other side of that kind of re-entry back into the busy life to, to making sure our neurology adapts to all of these different team and collaborations. What's going on in your experience? What are you seeing in terms of like happening post-lockdowns? What's the research telling us there? I think the research isn't telling us very much yet because it's too early. Certainly there's a lot of conversation in, in the various journals and the medical and health newsletters and so on, but uh, I don't think we know the answers yet because people are in all stages, as you said, of what, some people desperate to get out of their house and get back to work, other people very reluctant. I, I went to a community hall 
gig on the weekend and noticed in myself that I felt really not so much anxious but just really unfamiliar about being in this you know crowd of a couple of hundred people sometimes inside sometimes outside nobody with masks on it's a very strange experience we've been two years practicing asking ourselves do I need a mask can I go where can I mm. go how many how many people can I be present with so to have all the shackles come off does feel really very unfamiliar and, and strange. Mm. We've been building these new habits of checking and all of a sudden apparently we don't need to check. It's very strange. Yeah. Um, so, again, I think um, so much of uh, human health and well-being is about safety. You know, our brains are assessing first and foremost before we can ever do anything else, both before COVID and after COVID, am I safe? And so I think those questions are making room, making space for people to ask those questions, giving ourselves permission to ask those questions. It's our evolved, uh, hardwired, natural thing to do. So, so let's let's accept that and acknowledge that, and be really present to that. That's a, a basic human need, and we a common human human need. Um, and mm. then I think after that, we ask a second safety question, which is, do I belong? You know, yeah. am I safe in this group of people? Can I trust this group of people? Uh, am mm. I in relationship with these people? And so, again, more permission, more space, more allowance. You know, some people are going to come into those uh, gatherings more gingerly, more carefully than others. Uh, I had a retreat with some doctors a week ago and we were checking, it. That, you know, can we hug or can't we hug? Everybody had to make their own decision about whether they yeah. wanted to do that. I've had some experiences where people have said that they have hesitancy about particular places that they're telling their friends, I really do want to see you, but I, I can't come into that situation just yet. Mm. Um, so, and so I think with our patients and our clients, we need to be very aware of that too. Telehealth yeah. is here to stay. And some people will prefer to do that for rightly or wrongly. And mm. I think we do also want to stretch our envelope a little bit. Humans can't survive on their own. We do do better in company. And so um, we do need to be reaching out to people that we think are, are reluctant to come out and encouraging them. You know, can they come? If we want to visit somebody, they don't want us to come inside or they don't want to come to our house. Can we meet in your front garden? Can we meet at the park? Mm. Can we sit outside somewhere and have a conversation? The other complication we have is checking with people, are you vaccinated or not? And some people are very concerned about that. And that, that's a really divisive question that we're still mm. all learning how to manage. And I think we don't do, we don't feel safe when it's divisive either. So it's another mm. kind of um, impact on how safe we feel. But I, I really love that kind of, I guess, perspective of understanding safety and trust as almost a primacy of where mm. we meet people at. And so if we can talk about this psychological safety, then we can move so much further as long as we've established some sort of ground. But I know, Cherie, you are a big fan of prevention, uh, like yes. most of us healthcare practitioners. And so, you know, burnout is a stage of despair and despondency and empathy, fatigue, et cetera, which, which needs, you know, a lot of work to turn it around. But we were talking before the show about what your top tips are for prevention of burnout. Take us through them. Well, I think it is what we've touched on already around a little bit often. So that, I think that would probably be my, you know, primary rule, a little bit often. Uh, I love what you said about little kids, you know, they don't have a day off. So we don't have a, we don't have a day off for our well-being. You know, we can have a day off from, you know, I have to go and exercise, I have to do yoga, I have to meditate. We can certainly have a day off from that. But every day we want to be doing something that's encouraging and nourishing of ourselves. And some days mm. that might be that we sleep in. Some days it might be that we go to bed early. So we're really looking. 
Mm. Yeah, really looking for some consciousness about it though, that we're consciously choosing, that we're sort of running this low-grade inventory. What have I done today that's really filling up my tanks? And there are lots of practices for that. You know, you can do the, the evening gratitude practice, what we're built today, um, the, the early morning intention. What's my intention for today? might be to totally relax, to switch off from all my obligations. It might be my intention today is to really give a lot of energy to helping other people, but really having a consciousness about what's our intention and what's our reflection, if you like, at the end of the day, what's gone well, mm. what's been useful. And giving ourselves a set a bar, if you like, that we want to meet, but it's a, a fairly flexible, adaptable kind of bar. So not saying every day is the same, not saying I have to do an hour's exercise every single day, otherwise I've failed. You've already set yourself up to be stressed if you're making those kinds of commitments. So, <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> so we want to have a little bit of, um, you know, recognise the value of adaptability. We are adaptive yeah. species. And uh, that's the kind of part of the key of resilience. Resilience is not just fall down, stand up, fall down, stand up on an endless cycle. Resilience is being able when we've fallen down or when we've crashed or when we've had a hit to be able to say, wow, yeah, that's really taken the wind out of me. What mm. do I want to learn out of this before I front up to that again? What am mm. I going to adapt or change? Whose help do I need? Uh, who do I need to tell that this has happened to me? So really um, taking a moment to breathe essentially and take in what's happened and make those small adaptations and adjustments so that we are better equipped in the environment when we stand back up. To be knocked over and just keep standing up endlessly like many health professionals do is, you know, Einstein's version of idiocy, really. You know, if you want more of what you're getting, keep standing up and get more of what you're getting. Um, And we're really enabled. Yeah, we're really enabling poor practice. We're not enabling safety. We're not enabling uh, the best error-free care. We're actually putting ourselves and our clients at risk if we just keep mindlessly standing back up. So Mm. I think, you know, recognising that we are adaptive and and that we can adjust and change and tiny little tweaks on any given day can, you know, can help us do well and do better. And the other, the third, so the three, three key things really, Michelle, am I learning how to regulate my mind so I've got a clear process of thinking? And this is about consciousness, intentionality and so on. Now, can I regulate my emotions, my physical body? Do I understand the signposts? Can I name them? Am I articulate in my emotional um, capacity, my emotional intelligence? Mm. Um, and, and can I be with whatever emotion is here? I don't have to be frightened of them. I just need to know how to respond to them. Mm. And the third thing is, can I ask for help and have I, am I building a community of, of supporters and helpers and people I can trust around me? And we're all responsible for that individually and collectively, that this idea of powering on on our own is really flawed mm. in terms of our evolution. Yeah, that's brilliant, Cherie. Thank you so much for taking us through some of these tips. I love it. And it's, it's a really important reminder for all of us practitioners that we need to prioritise our own mental and emotional, spiritual and physical well-being. Otherwise, we risk burnout and that's a mistake for for us as a healthcare team, you know. And I think so often, as we said before, it's our nature to put others first when we work in a caring profession. But if we don't put ourselves into the soup, you know, if we don't constantly keep this in, in mind, our own care, uh, especially through difficult times, then we risk 
this languishing and, and burnout, which is no win for anyone really, let alone ourselves. No, it's not. And I'm, I want to say that it's, the contract's not a swap contract. You know, I didn't become a psychologist so that I could uh, lose my mental health in an effort to help somebody else gain theirs. You know, it's not, it's, it's, you yeah. know we, we, most of us who've come into health hope to enhance uh, the collective well-being mm. and to share to share good health and well-being. And so, this um, idea that many health professionals have got caught up in, the, in this patient-first kind of idea, it, mm. it, it exists for you know it's an ethical. It, it came about for ethical reasons. It's a fantastic principle for us when we're in difficult circumstance to try and work out what we should do. And I'm not for a minute suggesting that we should put our own um, you know benefit or gain above the patient. But nor do I think we should um, somehow give up our own well-being for mm. the patient's well-being. And I don't think the patient expects us to do that. It's, it's no. kind of well, got the patient to loses out as well. Mm. <clears throat> well, we'll finish on that note. So thank you so much, Cherie, and thank you everyone for listening today. And don't forget that you can find all of the show notes, transcripts, and of course other resources, including Cherie's book from today's episode on the FX Medicine website. I'm Dr. Michelle Woolhouse and thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Did you know Bioceuticals has a clinic-only range developed for exclusive use by clinicians? This product range offers complex formulas, higher doses, and specific ingredients for specialised cases. Bioceuticals Clinical infuses quality, credibility, innovation, and professionalism into an exclusive product range that meets the needs and demands of private clinicians. Visit bioceuticals.com.au to learn more.